Good morning. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. And while you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of context for the verses we come to. And by that, I mean context with our historical moment uh, for the verses we come to that we're going to look at from the Apostle Paul. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned all who would follow Him, quote, "'Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves.'" Jesus warns us that not everybody who says they're a Christian is a true Christian. Not every teacher who comes to us teaching in the name of Jesus is teaching truth. And that's important for us to realize. For the past 200 years, the church in the West has suffered a guerrilla attack by insurgents, uh, the insurgency of theological liberalism. And I call it an insurgency. I use the word guerrilla because it cloaks itself as if it's true Christianity. Theological liberalism has newer titles like the emerging church or progressive Christianity, but in all of its manifestations, it doesn't so much make doctrinal claims that are, that are in opposition to historic Christianity. That's not really the heart and soul of it. Uh, theological liberalism is more of a spirit. It's more of uh, an intellectual intuition And that intuition is to accommodate Christianity to whatever the intellectual spirit of the age is, to edit Christianity to try and fit the intellectual mood of the times. In its worst forms, it denies the deity of Jesus and His resurrection from the dead. In its less virulent forms, uh, it denies… Uh, or what it does is it seeks to revise everything in Christianity so that nothing in Christianity would challenge or be offensive to the intellectual elite. And that project includes making Jesus as non-threatening to 21st century Americans as possible. And I was reminded of that uh, this last week while I was reading a book review. I'll keep the book and the author anonymous because I still haven't finish the whole book myself, but uh, this is what the reviewer said about the author's treatment of Jesus. Uh, The author seems bent on reducing Jesus to the most comfortable, non-threatening, Hello Kitty figure that he can. Jesus is always nice, always accepting, and always non-judgmental, except, of course, for those judgmental and intolerant Pharisees who deserve to be judged back. The author delights in pointing out the softer side of Jesus. I suppose it will make us feel better about ourselves to realize that Jesus, too, struggled with loneliness and dependency issues. I guess we're to take comfort in the knowledge that Jesus can help us break out of restrictive stereotypes of masculinity. Even when Jesus commands a storm at a word to cease, the author sees as most profound in that story that God is vulnerable because after all, Jesus had fallen asleep in the boat from sheer fatigue. Excuse me, from sheer fatigue. Now, if, if what that reviewer is saying about this book is true about the author's portrayal of Jesus, I think we would need to respond to that author this way. Uh, we need to say this to that kind of portrayal of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is true that Jesus is incredibly tender with those who admit their sin and confess their need. Uh, He is portrayed in the Gospels as a good shepherd who takes us up lovingly in His arms as His sheep, 
And in fact, later on in Ephesians, we're going to learn that just as we intuitively know a husband should care for his wife, uh, so Christ cares for and nurtures His church. Uh, so it is true that Jesus does have an incredibly tender side. But that is only half the truth. Jesus was also incredibly tough on people who wouldn't admit their sin and were full of their own virtue. He was incredibly tough on people who twisted the Old Testament Scriptures to affirm people in their sin uh, and to nullify the commandments that God had given. Um, on two separate occasions, if you remember, He cleansed the temple uh, with a whip uh, of those who were selling, uh, those who were money changers and also those who were selling animals on the temple grounds. And so, yes, we, to be balanced, we need to say, I suppose in a way Jesus is pictured as that cute one-year-old pet lamb who is sacrificed at the Passover. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But He is also portrayed as the Lion of the tribe of Judah who will return in glory, robed in power with the armies of heaven to judge the living and the dead. He is also a lion. In the classic children's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis uh, has the following dialogue between Susan and Lucy and Mr. Beaver. And of course, in that story, there is a Christ figure who is a lion named Aslan, a talking lion named Aslan. And, uh, and Mr. Beaver tells Susan and Lucy about Aslan. They've never heard of him before. They've never met him. And they ask Mr. Beaver, is he safe? Right? Is this lion safe? And Mr. Beaver's classic reply is, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Uh, Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. Uh, he is presented in a variety of magnificent ways in Scripture as very powerful. He's described as a powerful, all-conquering king, a great invincible warrior king, uh, a hero, a commanding general of the armies of heaven. And today we're going to see uh, in the portion of Ephesians we come to that Paul is going to portray Jesus as a glorious, uh, victorious general who is giving gifts to each person in his church out of the spoils of his spiritual victory. Let's read about that together in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 10. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, He ascended, what does it mean except that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is Himself also He who ascended far above all the heavens so that He might fill all things. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that You would show us how the descent, ascent, and work of Christ has the purpose of filling all things. Help us to understand Paul's words here so that our faith would be deepened, strengthened, and given a better foundation. 
In the name of Your victorious Son, we pray, amen. Uh, Nathan and I are taking the youth group through 1 Samuel, and I think it's instructive that when the people of Israel ask uh, with bad motives for a king to reign over them, uh, that one of their motives is they want a king to go out and fight their battles for them. And we need to say in response to that, the people of Israel were right to see their need for a king to fight their battles. Where they were wrong is that they were rejecting God as their king in favor of a human king that they could see and interact with who would be their king like the kings of all the other nations. So, so they went about it the wrong way, but they were right to see their need. And as individuals, as we consider that story in 1 Samuel, we are not unlike Old Testament Israel. You and I need a great warrior king, a great hero, a powerful general to fight battles for us that we can't win. As individuals, uh, we need someone to fight our battles for us. For instance, we need Jesus to fight the battle for our freedom. Often in our public discourse, personal freedom is discussed in terms of freeing the individual from unjust people in society who want to practice some kind of illegitimate control over them. And that is certainly a real problem the Bible addresses in its passages about justice and righteousness. But more often in the Bible, the preoccupation of the prophets and the apostles is on freeing the individual from our slavery to sin. And the same is true in the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider for a moment this exchange He had with the Jews who were believing in Him in, him in John chapter 8. Uh, in John 8, we read this account. So, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in Him, if you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered Him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The fact is, you are a slave to sin. If you take an honest look at the law of God and what it requires, and then you compare your own life with it, you're going to see that you break God's law again and again. It's going to be inescapable that you not only commit sin, but that it's a habit pattern. It's, a, it's like an addiction. It's something that you're enslaved and ensnared in. Uh, and fighting the battle against sin is something that we can't do on our own. We need Jesus to rescue us, and that's the primary battle that Jesus won when He came to earth and died as a sacrifice for our sins. His victory over sin frees those of us who are His from the penalty of our sin, from the addicting and enslaving power of sin, and it sets us free to live righteous lives as acts of worship to God. <clears throat> the fact is we are also slaves to death and the fear of it. You need a warrior hero who will win the battle over death for you, and that's what the voluntary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ has done. The author of Hebrews explains it this way to us, "'Since the children share in flesh and blood, the Lord's Messiah likewise partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power over death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives.'" You need a battle 
Uh, you, you need a general, you need a hero to win battles for you that you can't win on your own. And that's what Jesus has done. He's won the battle for our freedom from sin. He's won the battle over the devil. He's defeated our enemy, death. And He promises resurrection uh, and eternal life for all who follow Him. Jesus is not just the Lamb of God. He is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah, a mighty champion, and a warrior king. Now, to fully appreciate why the Apostle Paul chooses to tell us this about Jesus and chooses to portray Him as a a victorious general here, we have to pay attention to the context that his words about Christ come in. And the context is this. Uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus is a two-part letter. The first three chapters are primarily doctrinal. The last three are primarily practical. The first three are about God's grand plan of redemption, and the last three are about how that plan of redemption, uh, how that connects with your life in the here and now. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians is the hinge on which the entire letter turns, and chapter 4, verse 1, which we read together, uh, it is a topic sentence that introduces the theme, the practical theme of the rest of the book. And that theme (coughs) is that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel we've been called to. And what that means is this, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling means that we live a life where our godly conduct is supposed to balance out with the privileges that we've received in Christ through faith. Uh, To walk in a manner worthy of our calling means that our conduct matches, not clashes, with the gospel message that we advocate. And the first paragraph that Paul dedicates to what it means to walking in a manner worthy of our calling, uh, it runs from chapter 4, verse 2, all the way down through verse 16, and the main point of it has to do with preserving the unity that the Holy Spirit has created within the church, within the body of Christ. Now, as we think about maintaining unity in the church, it is difficult enough to maintain unity when we are such an eclectic and diverse group of people in our opinions, in our interests. We have very strong opinions about things. We're we're kind of an eclectic group of people here at Grace Fellowship Church, and that makes unity difficult. But what makes unity even more challenging for us is that every single one of us is still a sinner in the midst of our own process of sanctification. And our sin makes us dangerous to the church. Our sins make us dangerous to God's people. Our sins make us a threat to the unity the Holy Spirit is working for the church to enjoy. And so, in His grace, God has given us three means of preserving unity in the church. The first means are the virtues that lead to unity, the virtues that set the kind of atmosphere, in the, a loving atmosphere, uh, that creates for, uh, that, that, that makes for bringing people together. And in verse 2, Paul described what those were. Those are putting on things like humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerating, uh, uh, bearing up with people who are difficult in love. It's having those attitudes with one another. The second means of preserving unity in the church, which we looked at last week, 
is for our church to focus on and celebrate uh, the foundation stones of our unity that bring us all together in a very objective way, that even if, we, even if we were to choose to part ways, as believers in Jesus, we still have some objective things that bring us together in unity. And we saw those last week in verses 4 through 6. We are all part of the body of Christ and share in the common life of the church. We were all drawn to faith in Jesus and are being sanctified by one Holy Spirit. Uh, we share the same future hope of our Lord's return and a resurrection body and being perfected morally in the life to come, no longer to be tempted by sin, and, and I could go on about our hope. We serve the same Lord. We share the same in common body of doctrine, particularly when it comes to the gospel message. We all took the same oath of allegiance, if you will, uh, to the Lord in baptism. Uh, we all share the same spiritual Father. And those seven realities unite us within the church family of Grace Fellowship Church, but they also unite us outside the four walls of our church to every true Christian from all of church history past and every genuine believer in the world today. Uh, and to the extent that we value and to the extent that we can focus on and celebrate these seven things we share in common, it will help make for unity in the church. It'll help bring us together. This morning, we're going to begin studying the third means God has given us to help preserve unity. Paul will explain it starting in verse 7, but his explanation is going to run all the way down to verse 16, and it's going to take us a few weeks to get through it. Uh, and here's the main point. As the Lord of the church, Christ has given us a game plan for the church to be understood and implemented that when followed creates incredible unity. It, it creates an incredible sense of camaraderie amongst the believers when we can actually be successful following this plan. Now, before I tell you what the plan is, just allow me to illustrate it, if, if you will. Imagine for a moment that you could start from scratch creating a brand new church. And this church had uh, maybe, let's say, a couple hundred. I'm a church pastor. I like church growth. So we're going to picture a couple hundred, okay? Uh, bigger than us right now. Uh, let's say you could have a couple hundred uh, Christians from, let's say, their 20s into their 90s. But imagine that this, what, there were some things that made this group unique. Imagine for a moment that everyone in this new church was completely unified about what the New Testament apostles taught, and not just about the major issues, even the, the things that we talk about as sort of secondary issues that Christians should be able to disagree on charitably and still work together in the same church and have unity, even on the secondary issues, they, had, they were of the same mind. They had the same opinions about what the apostles taught. And imagine further that they were a, a spiritually mature group of people who understood all of what the New Testament teaches about Christ, and that they were all, even the young ones, from the youngest to the oldest, they were remarkably Christ-like in all of their character and actions. Imagine further that every member of this new church was so wise that none of them could be led astray by false doctrines or subtle teachings that would lead them away from the truth, no matter how clever the arguments or how attractive the arguments of false teachers were. And imagine further that every one of them uh, had this uncanny way 
of always appropriately in the moment speaking truth in love. That just as Jesus was full of grace and truth, so they always uh, interacted with others in a loving way according to the truth. And they always spoke hard truths in a way that was compassionate and humble and gentle and, and patient with the hearer. Do you think that such a church would enjoy unity? It, it would. And that's what Christ is working to create. That's how, that's how He's going to create unity in the church. Look with, look with me at verse 12. Uh, Christ has a game plan for the church, and it's that every one of us would become equipped for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the unity of the apostles' teaching, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The Lord Jesus Christ is working on a game plan to create the very kind of spiritually mature church that I just tried to illustrate with uh, in my hypothetical uh, example. But the question becomes this, how is He going to pull that off? How is King Jesus going to accomplish this when there's a huge problem? And, And the problem isn't just that we're all sinners who are still in the middle of our sanctification. The problem is that when we come to Christ as baby Christians… Uh, we still have serious problems. Uh, We can be incredibly immature in our character. We can be easily led astray by false teachings because we're young in the faith and naive. We can be incredibly ignorant of what Jesus and the apostles taught uh, uh, that goes beyond the gospel message that we came to believe in. We can be, we can be ignorant of whole letters and entire arguments in the New Testament just because we've never read them as baby Christians. We've never been taught. And so, how is Christ going to get us from point A to point B where we have maturity in the church? And the answer in these verses is that He's going to give every member of the church spiritual gifts, verse 7, and He's going to give the church at large, uh, gifted leaders, verse 11. That's, that's his game plan, and we'll talk more about how he, how he fleshes that out and then how we get on board with that game plan in coming weeks. Um, and uh, one of the things Paul does here that's interesting is he mentions these gifts, verse 7, but then he doesn't elaborate on what they are or how we use them, which is kind of what I was hoping he would do. Um, And so, what we need to do here, I think, after verse 7 is we need to stop and we need to give the words of the Apostle Paul their due in verses 8, 9, and 10. And we'll do that in a moment. But before we get there, let me just give you a sampling of what we mean by spiritual gifts and just some rudimentary instruction in how we use these diverse gifts. Uh, Turn over, if you will, to uh, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And actually, I'll have to give a little bit of context here for Romans, Romans 12. Um, 
when we were over in Ephesians, uh, Paul, in verses 4 through 6, he talks us through uh, what I would call a list, uh, allow me to use this language, he talks us through a non-diverse list of things we all have in common. We don't serve a diversity of lords, we serve one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have a diversity of faiths that we're all practicing here in the same building. We have one faith, the the Christian faith. So there's like this non-diversity of things that we had in common, those seven things, verses 3 through 6 or 4 through 6. But then Paul transitions in verse 7 to say, but to each one of us gifts were given. And that word but, it's a connecting word with what came before, but it's connecting it by way of contrast. And so what I see Paul doing here is this. In, uh, in contrast to the non-diverse foundation stones of things we all have in common, Christ is now giving us something else that helps us stay unified, but there's a diversity to it. And the diversity is gifts. We're given a diversity of different kinds of gifts that all work together in the body so that the body builds itself up in love. And perhaps a great illustration of this would be uh, on our 20th anniversary, Brooke gave me this watch. And uh, I think it's a beautiful timepiece. Um, it has, I, I looked it up online, this timepiece has over 200 different parts in it. They're all uh, tiny, tiny little parts, all inter- intricately connected. And when every part performs its function, the watch works and keeps time. And it doesn't just function by keeping time. I actually think that the way all the parts come together actually makes it beautiful. It's a beautiful timepiece, as well as being something that performs a function. Well, you have the same kind of idea going on with the diversity of gifts in the church, that there's these diverse parts of the body of Christ that all serve different functions. Paul, um, I think I said last week that Paul's favorite illustration for the church, or his favorite metaphor, I should say, his favorite metaphor for the church is that we're like a body and Christ is the head, but all of us are like parts of the body and the different parts of the human body serve different functions. Uh, The eyes perform a different function than, say, the hands. And so, that's, that becomes this idea of, uh, non, uh, of diverse, uh, diverse gifts, diverse parts of the body uh, that make up the church. And when we all work together, it creates unity and growth for the body. Now, in Romans 12, verse 3 and following, we're going to look at some of these gifts, but I just can't help but mention this, right? In Ephesians, we just came to the hinge of Ephesians. The hinge in the book of Romans, in the letter uh, that Paul writes to the Roman church, it's chapter 12, verse 1. And so, we're in the hinge of Romans now, right after Paul has spent 11 chapters on doctrine, and now he's turning to speak practically. And when he makes that turn in Romans, what does he talk about? He talks about humility. He talks about unity in the church. He talks about spiritual gifts, very similar, right, thematically to Ephesians. And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 and following. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 
Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if serving in his serving, or if or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, what Paul wrote to the Romans there is not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. You can find other passages in the New Testament that list other kinds of gifts that Paul didn't mention there, but I I read that passage just to give you a flavor for the diversity of gifts within the church and even a little bit of instruction on how to use those gifts. Those who have the gift of giving with liberality, those who have the gift of mercy doing it with cheerfulness, those who have the gift of leadership leading in a way that's diligent. Um, That that gives you a flavor for the spiritual gifts. Now, we're going to look more at these spiritual gifts in coming weeks and at Christ's plan for how we use them in the church, but before we get into the nitty-gritty of those things, we need to look at verses 8 through 10 because Paul actually gives a defense here of the right Jesus has to have this plan and to implement it in the church. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 8, therefore it says, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, I'll confess that when I get to verses 8, 9, and 10, uh, when I read through Ephesians, in the past, I just sort of read over them quickly, and uh, they, as an American reader, like I, I know that these were inspired by the Holy Spirit, I know they're important for us to understand. I know I need to grapple with them as a Christian, but as an American reader, they come off as sort of awkward. They don't answer the question I want Paul to answer next. Uh, They don't elaborate on the spiritual gifts that Christ has given each member of the church. Uh, They're easy to mistake, I think, for a rabbit trail. But the reality is, verses 8 through 10 are not a rabbit trail. They're a defense of the right Christ has to arrange the church this way. The Lord Jesus has earned the right to create a plan for His church and the right to command every one of us to be on board with that plan and to help preserve the unity of the Spirit. Verses 8 through 10, then, are a biblical defense of Christ's authority over the church and His right to give the gifts He chooses to His people. Now, usually when we give gifts, there's an occasion for it, right? There's like a a birthday or an anniversary or there's a holiday. And here, Paul wants you to know that there was an occasion for Christ giving spiritual gifts to every member of the church and giving spiritually gifted leaders to His church. He begins in verse 8 by saying, therefore, it says, and as you read on, it becomes clear that the it he's referring to is the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament Scriptures here, specifically Psalm 68 verse 18, which says, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, what Paul is quoting there, first of all, what the author of the Psalms says in Psalm 68, and what Paul is quoting here, it would have been easy to understand for the Ephesians but the picture is lost on us in, uh, in contemporary times because it's not something we're familiar with. In the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East, and then also even in Greco-Roman times, uh, when a general defeated his enemy in battle, he would take uh, leaders of that army captive, he would take leadership of the country, perhaps political leaders, captive, 
Uh, and he would return to the capital of his own city, and, uh, of his own country, the capital city of his own country. And that capital city would be not only notified of the general's victory, it would also be notified of when the general and his army were arriving, and they would put on what would amount to a big parade, a big victory parade. And the general would march his army through the city, putting on display the kings and nobles and generals and captains of the enemy that he had captured. And during that parade, at the end, of, either during the parade or, or maybe at the end of it, another thing he would do is he would give gifts to the people of the city out of the spoil he had taken uh, from the vanquished country. Uh, there are ancient accounts of these parades. You can see pictures of them on reliefs. Um, but one of the most detailed accounts comes to us through the Jewish historian Josephus. Uh, he tells us of a parade that happened in Rome in 71 AD when Titus returned from putting down the Jewish revolt. Uh, according to Josephus, it was an extravagant, luxurious parade that eclipses any show you've ever seen. Uh, I went back and reread Josephus' account, and the closest modern equivalent I could think up would be like the opening of the Olympic Games, except imagine they gave lavish gifts to all the people who were in attendance at the Games. Uh, and Josephus describes gifts of gold and silver being thrown, uh, at, almost like candy at a parade, when we do like a Fourth of July parade, being thrown to the people of Rome. After that came floats. They built floats. We didn't make up floats. Okay, the, the, at, at least the Romans, and it might have been before the Romans, they would build floats. Josephus says that some of the floats were three or four stories high, and each float had a theme. It had this like intricately detailed theme uh, of uh, a city or a battle, uh, that, uh, uh, like a, a, a city that was laid, seed, uh, laid siege to, and Josephus, as a Jewish person, could recognize what cities in Israel each float was referring to. Uh, and at the very end of the parade, near the end of the parade, the largest float depicted the siege of Jerusalem and had the commander who uh, was leading the troops who were in the besieged city. He was captive on the float. And then after all the floats came by, then Titus came, General Titus, with the emperor of Rome riding on magnificent horses. And this parade went all the way. It wound through the main street of Rome up to the temple of Jupiter where some sacrifices were given to the Roman gods. And then Titus put on a feast for every, a lavish feast for everyone on the city. And it was financed by the spoils he had taken from Israel. And that is the picture here. Our Lord Jesus Christ is like a victorious general who's won a victory for us and is now giving us gifts out of the spoil of His victory. But what are we to make of this host of captives that Christ led captive? Well, I believe in keeping with the main idea of uh, Psalm 68 and, and even Ephesians 4 here, I think the enemies are, uh, I, th I think these are enemies Christ defeated uh, by His sacrificial death and bodily resurrection, and I believe Paul clarifies this for us in a parallel passage in Colossians. In Colossians 2.15, speaking of God's atoning work through His Son, Jesus, uh, we read this, when He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, and He means demonic rulers and authorities, when He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. 
I believe the captives here are Satan and demons, but it's also worth noting that Jesus didn't just triumph over Satan and demons. He triumphed over the power and penalty of our sins. He triumphed over the curse of the law against us because we we broke the law. Uh, He also triumphed over our enemy, death. His victory on the cross and in His resurrection secures our future resurrection. And when did General Jesus secure this victory? Well, Paul tells us when, when he recounts the descent and ascent of the Lord Jesus. Verse 9, Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Uh, Clearly, the ascension of Christ, uh, 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven. Clearly, that's what Paul is referring to with his ascension. But the question is, what is Paul referring to with his descent when he talks about the lower parts of the earth? Uh, Christians have understood this down through the years in one of two ways. Uh, One could be that Paul is referring to Christ after His resurrection, but before His ascension. There was a time, the New Testament tells us, when He went and preached His victory to demons who had been imprisoned since the time of Noah for their disobedience during the era of Noah. And you can read about that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. That could be what this is referring to. But there's also an Old Testament passages like Isaiah 44, where the expression lower parts of the earth is used simply to speak of the earth itself in comparison to heaven. The idea would be not the lower parts of the earth like underground, but just that the earth is a lowly place in comparison with the glory of God and His heaven. Uh, John Calvin took that second position, and this is how he explains it. At what time did God descend lower than when Christ emptied Himself? And Philippians 2 tells us He emptied Himself in His incarnation. And if there was ever a time when Christ ascended, uh, excuse me, if there was ever a time when God ascended gloriously, it was when Christ was raised from our low condition on earth and received back into heavenly glory. So, the depths may be the victory speech that Christ gave to imprisoned demons, uh, or it may simply be leaving heaven to live in this sin-cursed world, but then ascend back into glory. And what Christ did at His ascension is He gave the spoils of victory to His friends. And in context here, Paul wants us to see those spoils as spiritual gifts, that He's given the church the gift of every believer having a gift that's useful for helping their brothers and sisters in Christ grow up into Christ-likeness. And He's also given the church gifted leaders, primarily the prophets and the apostles whose writing guides us in the truth. And then Paul concludes uh, making his… he puts an exclamation point on his point by adding this verse 10, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And that idea of filling all things means this, the ultimate goal of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is that Jesus would eventually exercise sovereign lordship over all things. Now, having looked at these verses, I will confess to you, they're a little bit hard. They were, they were hard for me. This was a hard, it was a hard sermon to preach. It was a hard thing to manuscript. Um, but don't miss, we shouldn't miss the main point that Paul is making here. Christ has the right to nourish 
and to guide His church and to create unity within the church by whatever means He chooses as Lord of the church. If He wants to give every member of the church spiritual gifts for the common good, and if He wants to use human instruments like the prophets and the apostles to guide us, then that's His prerogative. He has the authority to set it up that way. And He also has the right to demand that we get on board with His plan and that we preserve the unity that He and the Holy Spirit are creating in the church. He has the right to rule His church. He has the right to distribute gifts uh, to His church, and He has the right to raise up leaders of His own choosing, even if those leaders include a former tax collector who writes one of our gospel accounts and a, persecutor, a former persecutor of the church who becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. If those are the people he wants to choose to be apostles in the church, that's the choice he gets to make. And we need to bow the knee to that, not question his wisdom in making those decisions. He has the right to do it. Why? Because he purchased the right by his victory on the cross. A victory, by the way, that defeated Satan, demons, the curse of the law against us, and even death itself. And uh, where shall we go with this? Well, in future weeks, we're going to talk about these spiritual gifts and, and what they mean for us as a church. Uh, but I would say this morning, just one word of application in closing. I believe based on seeing General Jesus and His victory and the spoils He's given to the church, we need to respond by understanding that we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear. We don't have to be anxious for the future. Uh, we don't have to fear Satan or demons because General Jesus has won the victory over them. We don't have to fear what comes after death. Uh, we don't have to fear the future day of judgment. And the reason why is because our transgressions have been pardoned. Uh, soon Jesus will return in glory as the general of the armies of heaven, and He will reign literally, visibly, politically on earth and usher in a golden age for humanity. And when His entire plan for all the ages is completed, He will then bring about a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem in which only righteousness and life and uh, virtue and justice dwells. Uh, we don't have to fear the future because we know King Jesus holds the future in His hands, and has a good plan for us and a good plan for humanity. Uh, please bow with me.